raised by you. We thank you for your faithfulness, even though, Lord, we are so faithless at times. We thank you that your goodness towards us is not based on us, not based on what we do, what, how we can possibly earn it. Lord, it's all grace. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship that we've had. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you bless our time together this evening. We are here in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, wait, 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 wait. You've done this to me before. Look here. I would, uh, he would never, he would never announce this, and like I said, he's done this to me numerous times before, so payback, buddy. <laughs> Wouldn't know it, but our brother here, who led us so beautifully in worship tonight, his back is killing him. So if you would join me in prayer for God to touch his back and, and give him relief from the pain. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are the great physician, and uh, Lord, all healing is in your hands. And Lord, I thank you for Dwight and his family and their, the beautiful gift that you've given them to worship and lead us in worship. And Lord, thank you for, for their willingness to use that gift to lead us and to do that tonight. And Lord, I thank you for, for Dwight. And though he, the, the last thing physically he wants to do is be standing up, Lord, he stood up for you and to lead us tonight. And Lord, I thank you for that. And I ask that you just touch him, that you that you heal his back, Lord, that you take away the pain, Lord, that you uh, just fill him with energy, and Lord, continue to fill him with your spirit and the passion to worship you. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, before you sit down, say hi to everybody around you and grab your Bibles. Okay, grab your Bibles if you would and open them up to Genesis chapter 43. We started Genesis 43 a couple of weeks ago and didn't, uh, didn't get very far into it, so we're going to pick up where we left off last time. little quick note uh, before we get into our study, if I forget before we're done to tell you, next week, next Wednesday night, we will not have a midweek service here. Um, it's the Awana Awards Night, so if you have children that are in Awana, bring, be sure to come and celebrate that as they have their last night of Awana um, for this school year next Wednesday. So we won't be meeting, but we'll be picking up our study the following week. And we, several people have asked after Awana, are we going to continue the Wednesday night service? And the answer is yes, we're going to keep going through the summer. So, um, but, so, but not next week. All right, Genesis 43. Uh, last time, if you'll remember, uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about how the brothers, the dreams that Pharaoh had seen had come true. There were the seven years of plenty. The seven years of famine has, have started. It's affected Jacob and his sons, that Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to get grain. Uh, Joseph recognizes the brothers, keeps Simeon, as a prisoner, because he, does, he tells them he doesn't buy their story, he thinks they're spies, but he's working the whole plan uh, as God is guiding and directing, sends them all back full of food and says, bring your brother Benjamin back with you. 
As we talked about as we started into chapter 43 last time, they ran out of food. It's time that they got to go back. They said, well, we can't go back. Judah said, we can't go back to him. He told us he's not going to even see us. We won't even be able to see his face unless we bring Benjamin. And he said, I will be surety for him. I will be the, the guarantee that, I, that Benjamin will come back. And finally, Jacob relents and agrees. And we left off in verse 14 and says, And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight, in, in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And we talked about how we trust God for our salvation, but do we trust him for tomorrow? Do we trust him for the next things that are going on in our life? Here Jacob finally realizes, I have to trust God in this. And if it doesn't work out the way that I want it to, I still have to trust God and believe, as we sang earlier, that God is faithful. He always is faithful. Well, we pick up then in verse 15. It says, So the men took this present. They loaded themselves up with, with nuts and balm and honey and all this sort of stuff that Jacob said, and then said, Take twice the money back and go back to buy some more. So they took this present, and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16, When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Joseph sees them, doesn't address them, doesn't go see them. He sends his steward and he says, go get those 11 guys out there and tell them to come to my house for lunch. Now, the men were afraid, Joseph's brothers were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money that was returned to our sacks the first time that we were being, that, that were being brought in. That he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came nearer to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And said, O oh my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. They're panicking. They're thinking, we're being brought into this because the money disappeared and we're in a whole lot of trouble. And there, there, there's a sense of panic. There's paranoia going on. There's, there's all sorts of pessimism, obviously. They think we're, we're in big trouble. And don't you know that leading a life of dishonesty, leading a life of sin, does that. You're continually looking around the corner as to when am I going to get busted. You're constantly trying to think up ways to cover your tracks. And how, how did I say, what did I say? And exactly how did I play that? Because I got to say it again and say the same line. And even when you're, you're not guilty, even when something is going right, you're constantly thinking that things are going to catch up with you. The problem is, if you're, if you're living a life like that, if, if it, or if you know someone who is a dishonest person by nature you know that they're constantly trying to defend themselves. And they say things all the time like, let me tell you the truth. Please, that would be good. It'd be good to do that. You know, let me be honest with you. That'd be great. Let's do that. You know, I'm telling the truth. If they have to start their sentences like that, that's an issue. That's a problem. 
And, and here we see these guys, and they're, and they're panicking because of the dishonesty that they've had. It goes all the way back. Remember when they, they, they went to the, the, the town there where their daughter Dinah was, was raped, and they told the lie of, hey, let's, let's bring you guys in to us, but you have to be circumcised first. And after they were, they went in and killed them. Just dishonesty and just a way that they've been dealing, that lying to their father about the whole thing with Joseph. Bottom line is, we need to live a life that is above reproach. We need to live a life of honesty, of integrity. We will, we, as Christians, our lives will be constantly called into question by the world anyway. They're constantly looking for ways to bring us down, things that they can throw against us. But living a life above reproach means that nothing sticks. They can bring their accusations all they want, but nothing is going to stick. We need to live, hand, live life that, that says, with clean hands and pure hearts before God, where we can continually go to him with a clean and pure conscience. But only God can do that. And it's all by grace. Turn with me real quickly to Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Oftentimes we think again of grace being that, that, that thing that we get in order to get salvation. By grace you have been saved through faith. Yes. Amen. It is by grace that we are saved. But by grace is also how we live as Christians. We can't do this life. We can't have clean hands and pure hearts. We can't live above reproach in and of ourselves. And Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And if you have a margin Bible, uh, it tells you there that it says literally for obedience. So the, word, the, the verse literally reads, through whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience. We have grace, gang, for obedience in order to live this life, in order to walk this way. And when we do, when we take a hold of that gift of grace to follow God and walk in obedience and, and live that honest life, that, that virtuous life, that separated life, we don't have to go around looking around every corner. We don't have to be all, all pessimistic and paranoid as these brothers are here. Well, our story goes on back Genesis 43, verse 23. He said, that being, of the, being the steward, be at ease. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. I think it's interesting, and I like this thing, because this is this, now, the, I, I believe it's the fourth person that is specifically talks about that was touched, pers fifth person, touched personally, specifically by Joseph's witness. He said, your God and the God of your father's, He's done this. He has blessed you. Here's this, here's this servant of, of Joseph's in this polytheistic place. They have multiple gods. They have gods for everything. But he says, your God did this. Your God has blessed you. Your God has, has done this for you. Now, if you'll remember, last time we talked about this when we were in chapter 42, verse 28. It says, then he said to his brothers, my money has been returned, and behold, it is in my sack. This is when they found out that the money that was in their sacks, if you'll remember. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another and said, what is this that God has done to us? And you remember, we talked about it back then. That it's, it's so easy and so quick for us. When things go bad, we blame God. 
Why are you doing this to me, God? How come this happens? But here we see the steward gives glory to God for what happened, but do the brothers? No. No. They're dumbfounded probably by what happens, but they don't say praise God. They don't give glory to him, but the steward does. Your God and the God of your father has given the treasure in your sacks. Well, we see also... Then he brought Simeon out to them. Can you imagine? Now, again, we talked about this at the transition of 42 to 43. We don't know the time frame that expired, transpired, I mean, between the two times, 42 and 43, but we do know they got sent back with a whole bunch of food, and they didn't come back till it was almost gone. So I got to think, Simeon gets out of jail and sees his brothers. What's the first thing he said? It's about time. <laughs> Where have you been? Well, anyway, they're reunited. Verse 24. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys fodder. I have to think again. Their minds are starting to go, what is going on here? We're thinking we're going to get in a whole bunch of trouble, all this sort of stuff. Not only are they brought into heaven, but they bring out water to wash their feet, to take care of their animals, being blessed in every direction. Verse 25, so they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house, brought into the house to him to present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Again, they're bowing down. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. It says, verse 25, So they prepared the present. Remember, they brought all of these, these gifts from their homeland, gifts of their hands, things that they had done. They brought, they brought almonds, pistachios. They brought some honey. They brought some myrrh and some other spices. And there, it says that they prepared the present. And I got to think the discussion's going, man, how are we going to impress this guy? How are we going to best do this? And, and, and maybe it was Reuben that says, well, let's give him the pistachios and almonds first. And Judah said, what are you, nuts? We, we, we can't give him that first. We got we to gotta hit his sweet tooth. Let's give him the honey. Let's give him the honey. And, and, and Dan probably said, man, that whole, both those ideas stink. We got to give him the sweet aroma of, of the myrrh. And they're constantly trying to figure out how are we going to give these presents to buy some favor with him. And you'll notice once they gave it to him, what was Joseph's reaction? Nothing. He doesn't even acknowledge the gift. He doesn't doesn't even pay any attention to it. All of the things that were given to him, all of the things that were were being poured out on them and blessing and that's still going to come had nothing to do with what they brought to him. And the same is true for us when we're dealing with our Lord. We so often feel like, man, I got to pray this way. I got to get up at this time. I got to do certain things this certain way. I have, we, we have to be very careful too, parents. Just a little side note and confession time right here. My son, he, he, was, he was tired and cranky tonight. And he was in my office and he was like, I don't want to go to Awana. You're going to Awana. Whether you like it or not, you're going. We have to be careful because it was right on the tip of my tongue and I was just like, oh, Lord, I'm teaching. I'm talking about this in just a little bit. I, I wanted, I, it was right on the tip of my tongue to say, what would God think about this? And it's like, oh, man. You know what? I don't ever want my kids to think that they have to go to church, that they have to do these types of things in order to get God's blessing. 
It's by grace, guys. It's all by grace. If we're doing anything, if we're presenting any offering to God, thinking that it is somehow going to increase our blessing that we receive from him, we're nuts. It's, it, it's all by grace. He wants to pour out his blessing on us. It's his desire to pour it out. All he wants is a vessel to receive it. All he wants is once we receive it, to give him praise and, and honor for it. The response that we give and the things that we do should come in response of the gift, not in order to receive it. And just like this, it's not, God doesn't even receive those things that we give him without the right heart. If, If you are tithing on the weekend to get something from God, don't bother. Keep your money. We are to give with cheerful hearts. We are to give of the abundance of which he has already given us. It's all his. And and if we do anything in order to try to gain favor with God, we're way out of bounds. And the enemy would love to keep us there, keep us thinking that. Well, I love this too. Verse 27, he doesn't even acknowledge the gift, but he asks him about their welfare. How are you doing? How's your dad doing? How are things going back home? Well, verse 29 As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself, and he said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, Joseph off all by himself, possibly with his wife and children, but no, no one else. Um, then them by themselves, the brothers, and then the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. So they got three different rooms, and that's where the food served. They're not interacting with each other. They eat totally separately. And this was customary back then, and we'll get to that more in a moment. Because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. A couple of things here. We see God's providential hand totally acting here. God brings eventually, we're gonna, if we get there th- this far, in chapter 45, God brings Jacob and all of the family to Egypt. And we know the story that, that, that that's where the Israelite nation, the Jewish people, the nation is born there in Egypt, in, in Goshen. That is where they, they needed to be. God did that on purpose. God did that for a reason. If, if they would have stayed where they were, we've already seen what happened with Judah. and, and other, They would go out and they would start mingling with the territories and they would have spread out and they would have totally been diluted out within the, the country around them. But God brought them to Egypt for a reason. And it tells us in verse 32, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews. Now the word Hebrews there means any foreigner. If you're not an Egyptian, they won't eat with you. And for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. He moved the Israelites to a nation that wouldn't assimilate with them, that wouldn't intermarry with them. Yeah, I'm sure there was variations of that from time to time, but as a culture, they wouldn't do that. 
God wanted to keep the Jewish people pure, his chosen people that way. So we see his providential hand in it. And then we got to get verse 33. I love this. That Joseph has them seated around the table in birth order, from the oldest Reuben to the youngest Benjamin. And some mathematician, I'd love to tell you I figured this out earlier today, but some mathematician figured out the odds of that happening, 40 million to one, to have them in that order. And it says that they're astonished. Yeah, I guess. How did he know? Well, just blown away by it. Well, verse 34, Joseph took portions to them from his own table, so he would have them served from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. We're seeing that the brothers here are being tested once again. Benjamin, the youngest brother, getting five times as much as the rest of them. And Joseph here, God, through Joseph, is testing the brothers. If you'll remember, they weren't too keen on the fact that Joseph, 20 years earlier, got some special privileges from dad. And here we see, 20 years later, Benjamin, now the youngest, getting a bunch of special privileges from this Joseph and just watching to see how they would react, being tested again. They passed the test, which is good, because God has a tendency to keep retesting until we pass a test. He won't promote us. He won't pass us to the next class until we pass the test that we're in. Just a little helpful hint there. If you're being tested and you don't like the test, pass it. <laughs> so you don't have to take it again. Well, another test is coming. Verse four, or chapter 44, starting verse 1, it says, Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did, as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light the next day, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. Verse 7, they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? With whomever your servant is found, or from, from whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it be also as according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. When each man had loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Takes an interesting twist. Again, Joseph, God through Joseph, giving them another test. And he said, all right, Load up all of their sacks, put all of their money back just like last time, but this time I want you to do one more thing. I want you to put my cup, the silver cup, 
in the sack of the youngest one. And then after they get out of town, chase him down and find out why they took it. And so we see that all work out. And again, these guys, they're so confident now that this is not true, that this hasn't happened. They make this incredibly rash vow. They said, whoever the cup, if this cup is in any one of the sacks, let whoever took it be killed. And the rest of us will become your slaves. Guys, we should never make vows that we have no intention of keeping regardless of how certain you are that it's not true. That the whole thing, I, you know, I, and I hear it so often, I swear to God, don't do that. Don't do that. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. That's what Jesus said. One other thing with that too. If you are asking someone something and you want to know whether they're telling you the truth or not, do not require of them anything more than a yes or a no. I've seen that happen too. Tell me that you were here when you, where you said you were. Yes. Swear to God. Don't do that. Like I said, Jesus said if you're doing that, that is from the evil one. That is sin. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, we are all called to make sacrificial commitments to God, to make vows, if you would, to God sacrificially. But again, just like we talked about earlier, it's by grace that we'll be able to, to do that. So we don't say, I swear to God, I'll be able to do it. We say, by the grace of God, I'll be able to do that. So help me, God, I will do that. One other thing with that too, James 1.19, those types of things happen so often because we talk way too fast. James says, James 1.19, be quick to listen, slow to speak. I've heard Don talks, says that often. That's why we got two ears and one mouth. <laughs> now, the test here again was the, the, the one earlier was more on envy. It, you know, would they become envious of their brother Benjamin? But the test I see here is the selfishness. The, the, the cup was found in, the, in Benjamin's sack, deliberately placed there. Are the other 11 brothers going to say, hey, got rid of Joseph. We don't have to get rid of Benjamin. This is happening for us already. Tough luck for you, Judah. You're the one who's surety. You spoke up. I told you you shouldn't do that. See ya. No, it says, to a man, they all, they all went back. Every one of them, every one of them. We see a total change of heart in all of the brothers. Every one of them went back. Every one of them willingly went back saying, I'll be your slave if the cup is found with any of us. Total heart change, total personality change, total character change, and gang only God can do that. Only God can change hearts. Only God can change character. Only God can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. And it only works God's way. Not Jacob's way. What was Jacob's way? To keep Benjamin right here. I'm not letting him out of my sight. But if that never happened, we wouldn't have seen this full story unfold with the other brothers. 
not Jacob's way. And again, I know I've talked about this several times, and I, I think more or less it's God continually to, to point this out to me, so I'm going to point it out to you. Mom and dad, not your way either. God's way. There comes a time as parents when we have to say, God's way. I can step in now and, and save them from this situation, but I can't. I need to let God do his work in them. And I'm going to have to let them fall down a little bit. They're going to have to scrape their knee. They're going to have to go through a difficult time because God's doing a work in their heart. And if I continually step in and block that from happening, it just delays it. Again, God's not going to let them pass the class until they pass the test. And if we keep taking the test for them, they'll never do that. Well, verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, Joseph, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one whose possession, whose possession the cup has been found. They finally get it. Judah's the, the spokesperson here. I think he probably needs to be. Well, we, we've talked about how, how Reuben and Simeon have kind of forfeited their, their rights as the leaders of this clan by birthright and age. Judah being the, the next one, but he was the one who stepped up finally with Jacob and said, I'll take responsibility for Benjamin, and in so doing, basically taking responsibility for the whole group, he steps up, but, and in so doing, saying, we get it, we get it. They're, they're, they're innocent of stealing the cup. They didn't steal the cup, although the evidence points to the fact that they did. They're innocent of that, but they're guilty of something far greater. And they recognize that. There's, there's recognition. It says, it says uh, verse 16, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And so often, even as, as Christians, we need to understand that we need recognition of sin in our lives. It's easy for us to say, well, I'm innocent of that sin. I, I'm, I'm not guilty in that area but looking over the areas that God is pointing out and dealing with us in our lives. God brought this back up to their hearts. He stirred their hearts for this still un unrepented of sin. Though it was 20 years old, there's no statute of limitations when it comes to sin. You can't outrun it. Your sin will eventually find you out, the Bible says. And you can try to cover it up, you can try to run from it, you can try to go wherever you are, but if you, hear me, if you are a child of God, he will not let you get away with it forever. And again, it's not for punishment as a child of God, it's, it's, it's because the, our punishment has already been paid for, Jesus took that to the cross. But it's damaged the relationship between us and the Father, and he wants to deal with that so that we can have the relationship again restored, and that's what needs to happen here before the relationship in the family can be completely restored. Recognition is the one thing, and recognition is often blocked by pride. 
And it says that God, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Again, we talked about it earlier that, that grace you can't earn, but we do have to be humble in order to receive grace. Pride gets in the way, we can't receive it. Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's the second step. There's recognition of the sin, but there's also repentance. The, the proof that at one time in your life you repented of your sin is that you continually repent of sin. It's an ongoing process. As, as Christians, we recognize sin in our lives. We repent of that sin. We turn to God. It tells us when we do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. But it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Is it the kindness of God here? It kind of sounds like a cruel joke. That we're going to stick the silver chalice in this, in this one bag and do all this kind of stuff? No, it's not a cruel joke. Joseph did this out of love. He did this because he knew that they needed to come to this point. So out of love, he did this for his brothers. And we're going to talk about this this weekend when we get a little further into Hebrews chapter 12. The discipline that we receive as followers of God doesn't come because he's, he's mad and angry and, and vindictive and all those sort of things. It comes because he loves us. It comes because of love. Well, we can't hide from our sin. We can't run from our sin. We can't, we can't fix our sin problem, burying it, doing anything with it. It needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And here the, the brothers finally realize we can't outdo this anymore. We are your slaves. And they, go, they, they confess that. They repent of that. And here we, when we move into verse 17, we see what, as I read a couple of commentaries today, this Prayer is what they put in quotations that Judah makes to Joseph. And Martin Luther calls it the most beautiful prayer in the Old Testament as an outline for us of prayer. I see that certainly right off the bat where it says, but he said, now this is Joseph first speaking, but he said, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. But verse 18, then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, May your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Humility. Total humility. If, if you've, he's my servant, he says that, and I tried to count this today. It was kind of funny. I tried to count it many times. If you want to do a little homework assignment, do that. Between verse, verse 18 and 34, how many times he says, your servant or something along those lines. I got up to 16 one time, and then my phone rang. And then somebody came to my office door. I finally just gave up. So there you go. And email me when you figure out how many times. But anyway, he says, your servant, over and over and over, placing himself, understanding who he is in the equation. And then he says here, you are equal to Pharaoh, understanding who Joseph's position is. And that is so important for us when we understand how we approach God in prayer. Yes, the Bible tells us that we are boldly to come to the throne of grace. Boldly. But never forget who he is and who we are. Boldly, but with humility. 
He doesn't say, and again, I, I, I so appreciate this in seeing the total life change in Judah and all of the brothers reflected in this. He doesn't say, hey, wait a second, sir, your honor, this isn't fair. This, this, is, this is unjust. We're innocent. We demand justice. <laughs> That's a horrible prayer, gang. You don't want justice. You don't want justice. You don't want fair. You want mercy and grace. And when we approach the throne, we come with this attitude. Well, his prayer continues, his conversation with Joseph. It says, My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then he said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for he, if he should leave his father, his father would die. You, you said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless your youngest brother is with us. Unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my hair down, my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up to his, with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For I fear that I see the evil would overtake my father. Again, we see this incredibly changed man, totally concerned far more with his brother and his father and his brothers than himself. And as I mentioned before, many commentators compare and draw the parallels, and I'd asked you if you wanted to do that. You've probably seen many as we go through the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, that many people think that Joseph is a type of Jesus because of all of the different things through there, and there are many, many, many parallels. But here we see a beautiful parallel between Judah and Jesus. Judah is completely innocent of any charges when it comes to that cup being in the sack. Yet he was willing to take the full guilt and penalty and punishment for the one who it was found in, his brother Benjamin. And it was done because of love for Benjamin and love for his father. And again, we see that such a beautiful picture of Jesus, the innocent one, the one without sin, the one who knew no sin, yet because of his love for us and his love for the father, took our punishment, 
took our penalty. And Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than if you lay down your life for your friends. 1 John 3.16 says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down our lives. Now, just like many husbands, wives would probably say, I'd, I'd, I'd die for my wife. But would you live for her? I'd die for my husband. But would you live for him? If it came right down to it and the moment called for it, I'd die for you as, as my brother, as my sister, because I love you. But will we live for each other? Galatians 6, 2 says that when we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. And you know one of my favorite verses quoted often, Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And verse 5 is the key. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of man, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Our example, Jesus. Then the great example we see in that, in, in, in a human form, in, in Judah here, being willing to lay down his life for his brothers, humbling himself completely and totally. Well, chapter 45 Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He's totally overcome by emotion because he sees it. He sees the total change in his brothers and totally exemplified in Judah here with this passionate plea. He sees that it's real, it's genuine. And he's broken over it. And he finally is just so flooded with emotions. Verse 2, it says, He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. And of it's in italics. So the household of Pharaoh heard. Now, I don't know how close they lived by, but he was full of emotion. And he was letting it all out. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, that's probably a huge understatement. (laughs) Can you just imagine the scene here? After everything that they've been through, all of their conversations they've had with Joseph to this point, they think he's some Egyptian second vice president of the whole place. He's been talking with them through an interpreter the whole time. Now, I am Joseph, your brother, in their language. And then it had to hit him. I knew he looked familiar. I, I couldn't place it. 
And it it says that they were dismayed at his presence. I mean, that literally means totally come undone. There's a Hebrew legend, and it's legend. Nowhere supported in Scripture. But the legend is that their spirits actually completely left them, and it was only by the grace of God shoving it back in (laughs) that they were just totally beside themselves, totally out of themselves. I am Joseph. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his households and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, when we read these verses, it's easy to come to the point where we could say, man, look at, look at what God did. And he even said that, You didn't send me here. God sent me here. So does that mean that the brothers are innocent? The bigger question, I guess, would be, did the brothers have a choice? Yes. The brothers aren't off the hook with this. This doesn't mean like, hey, guys, you really didn't have a choice in this whole thing. I get that now. You know, you threw me in the pit. You sold me into slavery. You did all that stuff. You really didn't have a choice. God made you do that. No, he did not. God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility. Hear that again. God's sovereignty does not remove our responsibility. I have heard many people say, and this is the danger when we get way over into what is called hyper-Calvinism, where people say, I really didn't have any any choice in the matter. I'm really not responsible for my own actions because God is in control of all things. Is God absolutely and totally sovereign? Yes. Do we still have a choice and a free will? Yes. Are those two things mutually exclusive? Yes. How does it all work? I have no idea. Amen. Praise God. If I could figure it out, if I could figure God out, he wouldn't be much of a God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. His ways are so much higher than ours. His purpose is way beyond what we could possibly fathom. And praise God again for that. But it's extremely important that we understand that, that, that though God is sovereign, though he is in control, he has given us a free will, and we are responsible for the choices that we make. Now, the thing that I love about this, though, is we see this, this acted out for us in these eight verses, Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good, for those who are, love him and are called according to his purposes. God worked it all out for good, for their good. He, Joseph says it in a couple of times. He says here that he kept me alive for a great deliverance for you to preserve life. Preserve your life. 
God worked it all out for your good, even though you're the guys who did it. You're the ones who sold me into slavery. God worked it all out for your good and his glory. He receives all the glory. Joseph gives God all the praise and all the glory. God did it. God did it. We have to have the proper attitude towards sin. And I love the way Joseph says this. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourself. The Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not a little bit. We're not supposed to carry around any, just a little bit of guilt just to keep us, you know, on edge. No, none. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, the Bible is also very clear that because grace abounds, it doesn't mean that we can go out and sin all we want. Paul said, may it never be. He said it four times in Romans. May it never be. Don't think that. And it's not a fine line. It is not a fine line to walk. We are to hate sin as God hates sin. We are to desire holiness and rejoice in grace because grace is the only way we could do it. Coming back again, full circle to what we talked about in the beginning in Romans 1.5. It's only by grace that we can be obedient and it's only by grace that we are saved. So rejoice in that grace and walk in obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again. What an, what an amazing story that we see unfolding and what a perfect picture of the perfect combination of your grace and our free will. Lord, we desire to be obedient. We desire to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given us. Lord, as we talked about on Sunday, we want to run the race that is set before us, and we want to run well, and we need grace. We need more grace. Lord, keep pouring your grace out on us. And Lord, forgive us for those areas where we have tried to earn your favor. Lord, let us, let us rejoice in the relationship that we have in you. Let us live and, and praise you in response to your goodness, not in order to receive it. Lord, I thank you for all of these that came out tonight just to, to hear from your word, to study your word. What a blessing it is. I know we're busy. We've got a lot of things going on. Middle of the week, Lord, I pray that this is just that dose that we need to keep us going this week. That we would, that we would go to work tomorrow filled with your spirit and filled with the power of your word, Lord, and use us, use us. Give us an opportunity, Lord, to share maybe something that you spoke individually to us tonight. We want to be used by you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Don't forget, next week we're not meeting here. Uh, if you have kids, you still have your Awana uh, Awards night, but we'll see you back in two weeks. God bless you.